0: Ramble. To be completely transparent with you, I am still at that stage in my life where if you tell me, Hey, something's going to make you feel better or something's going to make your skin clear, I'll probably be like, give me the clear skin. But growing up is realizing that you can have both. And I have made it a habit to implement things in my life that let me have both. Did you know that your gut health really impacts your skin health and not just skin? Apparently your gut health can impact your immune system, your energy levels, even your mental health. That is why I've now added my favorite probiotic, for from Symbiotica to my morning routine. It sounds weird to say, but Symbiotica's health supplements are now part of my skincare routine almost. If you guys don't know, Symbiotica is a supplement company that only uses clean premium ingredients in its formulas. No seed oils, no fillers, no additives, no natural flavors and no artificial ingredients. Symbiotica also formulates all of their supplements for optimal absorption. For example, I love their vitamin C so much, which is also really good for your skin. If you didn't know, everybody loves it. I mean, it's probably the most popular vitamin C amongst all of my friends and family. We love symbiotica. Their vitamin C is formulated with liposomal technology, which basically means the vitamin C is delivered to the part of your digestive tract where it can be optimally absorbed. And I just love throwing one in my bag on the go, especially when I'm traveling. Symbiotica makes it so easy to stick to a routine, not just because of their supplements being great and tasting great and making me feel great, but also because they get delivered monthly. That means I never have to worry about refilling my supplements or running out and it's just so easy to pause a delivery or add a new supplement to my delivery. With Symbiotica, I've really noticed an improvement in my skin health, but also I feel like I have more energy and mental clarity. Symbiotica has countless high quality supplements that you can choose from. Sleep supplements, cognitive supplements, anti-aging supplements. If you're not sure which supplements would be best for your specific needs, you can do a short quiz on Symbiotica's website and they'll recommend what you could benefit from. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to symbiotica.com and use code rotten for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com and use code rotten. Welcome to this week's mini-sode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. And let's just jump right into it. They had met on a beautiful cruise. You guys know how I feel about cruises. So this is this is not going to end well. How, how do you feel about cruises? I'm terrified of cruises. I don't like it. I don't like being on international waters. I don't like the fact that there's no police system in place where people can just die or disappear or go missing. And I feel like the food is questionable, you know? The food's got to be questionable. <laughs> like, wait till you turn 40. <laughs> I'm going to be on a cruise every day. day. going to be like, no episode this week. Sorry, guys, I'm going on a cruise. <laughs> no, they had met on a beautiful cruise. It was going through the Caribbean islands. All the beautiful white sand beaches were their main attraction. It was an upscale cruise. So all the passengers, you're talking primarily upper, upper middle class, trying to have a blast, getting drunk, gambling. That's where the couple met, by chance, by the pool on this romantic cruise. And since their first kiss was at sea, it only seemed fit. It only seemed appropriate that their last kiss would be at sea too. You see, they were breaking up. She wanted to move on. I guess she saw it as this sort of short fling, a romantic getaway fling. But when the couple tried to get serious, they realized that they just did not mesh. They did not click. They were not perfect for each other. The main problem was he lived in Greece. She was from New Jersey. She tried to move to Greece to be with him, and it was just too hard. So this was their final goodbye. He looked into her loving face. She looked gorgeous, her hair blowing in the wind. And he kissed her lips one last time. And then he tossed her severed head to the ground and lit it on fire. Then he threw her corpse and the rest of her body in the lake. He wanted to burn her face because he wanted to make sure that he was the last one to ever see her beautiful face. Yeah, it's going to be a wild case and it's going to be so infuriating. So just keep that in mind. As always, full show notes are available at rottenmanglepodcast.com, but there is an incredibly researched book on this case called Blind Passion, A True Story of Seduction, Obsession, and Murder by John Glatt. I got sucked into this case and this book. I mean, it's written mainly based on interviews with those involved, with those that were close to Julie. The book does a phenomenal job at making you feel connected to the case, connected to the victims and their lives. It's incredibly emotional and raw. It's written in a way where it's super thorough, super organized, but it doesn't feel like you're just going through court documents. It's very difficult to read this book and not relate or feel for and understand the victim's life and also their loved ones because, I mean, I can't even imagine what they were feeling during this time. So please go check out the book. It is the best deep dive on this case that you will find. And with that being said, let's get into it. It was an intervention. Okay, or maybe the beginning stages in preparation for an intervention. Their friend, Julie, had left her loving, caring millionaire husband and their child together, moved to Greece to be with a 23 year old dude. I mean, it seemed like she was losing her marbles. Like what's going on? So they gathered all of her ex friends because she had cut them all off. She also cut off her ex husband by, you know, cheating on him. And they sat in the room to talk. It was awkward, to say the least. All of them felt a sense of betrayal by Julie in one way or another. And here they were talking about what to do. Well, when's the last time you talked to her? One friend said, Oh, I talked to her a while ago, and, you know, she sounded so sad. I think it was hard for her to make friends in Greece. She didn't know Greek. She couldn't understand any of the street signs, any of the words that people were saying. She had nowhere to go by herself. She couldn't make friends. She couldn't connect with people. I mean, she had no deep social interactions, and we all know Julie thrives off of that. Another friend said, she told me she was starting to regret the move. It just wasn't what she thought it was going to be. I told her to come back home and she said, I can't. I have nowhere to go. Tim got the house and the divorce. Where would I stay? And I told her, don't be silly. You can absolutely stay with me. She said she would think about it. Another friend admitted that they thought Julie was being abused by her new Greek lover. She said, you know, before they left, I saw these stitches on her arm. And I was like, did George do that to you? And she just said, no, 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 I fell down the stairs. And that was that. You know, usually when people fall down the stairs, enough to warrant stitches, it's a whole story of like, oh my God, I was at the top of the stairs. You would never guess. It's like a ghost pulled on my leg. I was, I was balancing 25, 25 million things in my arms. Oh, I'm so clumsy. No, just, oh, I just fell down the stairs. Tim, Julie's ex-husband, said he had an emotional call with her where she begged him to send their young child on a plane to Greece so that she could see their child. He refused. Absolutely not. Not with that weirdo that you're seeing. And she became hysterical. She started accusing him of not caring what she wants or about her happiness. And Tim said, I care about my daughter. You're the one who left. And according to everybody's dates, that was the last time Tim had talked to Julie. But also the last time anyone had talked to Julie. They had no idea by the time that they had this meeting, Julie was already dead. Julie's ninth birthday party was probably one of the most traumatic incidents in her life. And trust me, she had her fair share of traumatic incidents. She was run over by a car when she was just three years old. So yeah, this is nine-year-old Julie. She had seen some shit in life. And this is out of this world. Imagine the ninth birthday party where there's children running around everywhere, screaming, running, being safety hazards, not only to themselves, but to everybody around them. Parents are chasing, Jimmy, don't you run down the hall. Maybe a family comes late looking for parking on the street. In front of the house There's balloons hung up on the mailbox to indicate Yep, this is the house with the party It was easy to lose your spouse Or your friend at a party like this Kids are running in the back Parents are grilling it up Some are in the kitchen fixing up the cake Some are getting some side dishes Some are going to their car to get their presents I mean, it's hectic Julie's mom probably had the most hectic job She's the one hosting the party I mean, sure, yeah, Julie's dad is helping But (laughs) is he really helping? Now, during the chaos of it all, Julie's mom was inside prepping some things, cleaning up after the kids. She looks outside the window, and her husband is in the middle of the residential street in front of their house at their daughter's ninth birthday party, making out with their female neighbor. Yep. Julia, Julie's mom, dropped everything, ran out, confronted her husband, and you could hear the yelling from down the street. Everyone, not only at the party, but on the block, knew what had happened. Julie's dad went inside, packed his bag, and walked out on his family on his own daughter's ninth birthday party in front of her, in front of his whole family, in front of all of Julie's friends. He never came back to the family home. Nine-year-old Julie would probably remember this moment for the rest of her life. And it might be the reason that she made specific decisions that she made. So let's talk about her childhood. It really all starts with her mom, Julia. So Julia was born into this massive family, right? She was one of six kids, and her parents, they were um, both from the Navajo tribe. So Julia grew up with a strong influence from her indigenous heritage. They lived in the Four Corners Reservation in New Mexico, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the largest reservation in the U.S., now, from a young age, she's immersed in all this Navajo folklore, traditions. She, she learned the bloody history of her people when Spanish settlers systematically just pillaged and burned their lands. Yeah, it was a bleak but necessary history lesson that she had to learn about the cruel side of humanity. But other than that, Julia said she had a very pleasant childhood. I mean as pleasant as it gets her family raised goats and sheep they grew their own vegetables and fruit and her mom would weave these intricate rugs the traditional navajo style for um to sell to to tourist listen it was an honest living but it did not leave a ton of room for financial error there was not a lot of wiggle room they had to watch all their pennies all their dimes they had to make sure that the children never felt like they were lacking for example Julia grew up speaking fluent Navajo, and by the time that she was 12, her parents send her off to an ing- indigenous boarding school, and she had a full-blown culture shock. This was not like a Navajo school, because there's hundreds of tribes of um, indigenous people in the U.S. They were speaking English, and she's like, I've had the same experience. Tell me why, okay? She had no idea that there was an outside world outside of the reservation. I mean, the boarding school experience was the first time she even left. She had to learn English. She's like, you're telling me not everybody speaks Navajo. I thought the same thing. I didn't know not everybody spoke Korean here. I went to kindergarten and I was in for a shock. And like, why do parents not tell you that? I think maybe they were scared that you wouldn't go because I was not warned <laughs> and neither was Julia. She just showed up and there they are speaking a weird ass language. They're like, what is that? English? And this new boarding school felt like suffocation, to put it nicely. I mean, she's used to fresh air, open fields on the reservation. And now, now she's stuck. So I feel like this is either going to go of two ways. Julia's either going to hate the outside world, retreat back to the reservation, and stick with what she knows. Or she's going to become obsessed. She's going to become obsessed with exploring what else is outside in the quote, outside world. And that is exactly what happened. She dropped out of boarding school. And at just 16 years old, she ends up getting a babysitting job in Sacramento, California. Over the break, she was staying at this, she's like a nanny, staying at this couple's high-rise apartment in San Francisco, a giant skyscraper. She had never seen one in real life. She had never even been inside of one in real life. She was mesmerized. She was so scared. She couldn't even go out onto the balcony because she thought it was going to just fall off the building. And when she did go out alone in the city, she would stand on the street corner for hours watching the world just pass her. I mean, these people, why do they dress like that? Why do they look like that? Oh my God, why do they do that? I mean, it was so fascinating to her. And she knew from then on, she was a city girl. (laughs) She sat her parents down and she was like, okay, after school, I'm going to leave the reservation. Love you. Nothing personal. And they were freaking confused. They're like, what are you talking about? Nobody else in our whole family, not a single family member, not an aunt, not an uncle, not a cousin, has ever wanted to leave the reservation. This is our sanctuary. You know, outside, they're going to discriminate against you. They're going to be racist. It's full of prejudice. Even though we were here first, they're going to want to act like they were here. You want to go out there and live with that? But they're like, okay, I love you, Julia. So you do what makes you happy. We're going to support you. So 18-year-old Julia, she starts moving around, bouncing from city to city. She starts working in hospitals. One of her jobs was in a psychiatric unit, and she said it was so traumatizing because okay think about this you live on a reservation like you've seen the same community members your whole life you go into the city you get a job at a psychiatric hospital and she said people were dead in the eyes just like zombies blank expressions and she would give them slops of hospital food just like sloshy mush on a plate it was a sobering experience and julia was like i never want to be like that i want to live my life And the best way to live my life is to experience drugs. Yeah. So she started getting into speed, which is an amphetamine, which is similar to meth, Adderall. They're all kind of all in the same family, right? And it helped her stay awake for sometimes 48 hours at a time. And you're like, wow, is she working 48 hour shifts? Okay, here's the thing about Julia. She like really loved to party. It kind of runs in the family, starting with Julia. (laughs) So Julie later is a partier but julia would work a 12-hour shift in the psychiatric unit go party for 12 hours until her next shift show up for work and then go party again after that and she would use speed to get through all of it so think like cocaine yeah she wouldn't get a wink of sleep and it was at one of these parties she runs into this guy named john scully john is like the opposite of julia not in a cute opposites attract way, but in um they literally had nothing in common with each other and I don't know what they even talked about. They just they thought each other were hot. That was pretty much it. John grew up in this conservative house, really did not enjoy partying much. Also his family were like, indigenous people, we we fought for this land, we won it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were really um they were pretty racist from what I heard from the book. I've never met them. Don't cancel them or me. <laughs> okay. But he was physically attracted to Julia instantly. Like in the sea of women, Julia with her Navajo heritage, I mean, she stood out in the best way possible. She was beautiful. Her looks were striking. John said she was unique. He had never seen another woman like her. Basically, she was hot. So keep this in mind later because this guy just proposes marriage out of nowhere. They went on a few dates and then he called her. Yeah, he called her to propose to her and she said yes. It was over the phone. Yeah. And Julia would later say, Yeah, it's just a kid. We were at a party, and uh, I, I, I knew it was coming, because at the party, he was like, I'm going to marry you one day. And it never really occurred to me that we would actually get married. Weird. In hindsight, it was a bad decision. We were both young. We had no money, no strong careers. We were just trying to make ends meet. And add to that, John wanted to work in Philadelphia, which is 2,000 miles away from Julia's parents. So it would be very, very difficult for her to visit on a whim. But in the end... She agreed to go because, I mean, she's young. She thought John was the one, but from the get-go, big mistake. First of all, all her neighbors were oddly racist. And you're like, how can you be oddly racist? Um, they all assumed that she was either Filipino or Korean. And they were racist to her based off the fact that they assumed she was Filipino and Korean. But then even if she, they found out that she wasn't Filipino or Korean and she was, in fact, indigenous, they would still be racist. Because they're like, oh, same shit. Whatever. You're not one of us. So, <laughs> yeah, odd. Very odd. I mean, don't get me wrong. Most of them were somewhat friendly to her face, but they always looked down on her. Sometimes the covert racism is worse. Like at least these days, if someone is aggressively like straight up racist, you can film it and they'll get fired from their job and deal with real life consequences. But if it's like covert and it's like the smallest subtle microaggression, people will always be like, oh my God, you're being sensitive. Yeah, so she was dealing with covert racism. They were racist undercover, little racist spies. And Julia could feel it. Even John's family gave her the same energy. They were hesitant to accept her because she wasn't white. Which, side note, again, she was here first. You know what I mean? I'm just saying, sorry. So Julia's miserable and her job, she gets the job working at this dark, horrible shoe factory. I mean, it was bad. The conditions were bleak. She would just work all day, come home, and John wouldn't even be home because he got a job as a police officer. So he's out there fighting crime and she would be completely alone 2,000 miles away from her family. And it just, it was miserable until she got pregnant she was like, yes, this baby is going to be my saving grace. I'm going to pour all my energy, all my love into this freaking baby. She devoted herself to planning the nursery, literally everything. And then she gave birth to Julie Marie Scully. They were so happy. Just like how her name was similar to Julia. Julie looked just like her mom. She was a gorgeous baby. She is described to be photogenic from day one. I mean, she had this luscious, dark hair straight out of the womb. My niece would be so jealous. <laughs> My niece came out hairless, completely hairless. I don't know why. <laughs> okay, so things were starting to look up in the scully house. John started making time out of his busy schedule to take Julie fishing and she loved it. This girl was kind of a firecracker. She would go up and pick up crabs just out in the lake. They didn't even have the little rubber bands around their claws and she would just pick them up. She was really proud. Never got bit. Not once. And it's really cute, right? But Julia is a complicated woman. So Julia, the mom, is like, I don't like fishing. I don't like crabs. And you guys are having too much freaking fun without me. So she's getting jealous. She's getting upset. She's feeling lonely. She starts doing drugs again. She starts going back to that speed. And she managed to keep it a big secret. By the time that Julie was born, I mean, the drugs, the stress, it was aging her body. But that is what's terrifying about addiction. She just could not quit. And she would struggle with the addiction for most of her life. Now, soon after Julie, there was John Patrick Scully. I know the names are so similar. So Julia and John Sr. had Julie and then John Jr. (laughs) Mm, okay (laughs) i know listen can you imagine like screaming someone's name in the house i would just be john i mean dad i mean brother julie julie it's a lot and the whole family dynamic switched immediately once john jr came out of the womb because john senior was like oh yeah i like that one it's got a wee wee just like me so it's more valuable yeah he was one of those guys that always wanted a son and he wasn't the type to baby his daughter so I know a lot of dads that want a son, but um, like kind of like my brother-in-law really wants a son, but he babies his daughters. I know if they ever did have a son, he would still be like a like a daddy. They would all be daddy's girls. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the daughter always gets spoiled by the dad. Those type of dudes. John Sr. was not one of them. He just wanted the son. And then he pretty much tossed Julia aside and was like, whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't need to go fishing with you anymore. I got a real dude to go fishing with now. (laughs) Like, what? And this led Julie to feel really left out from the boys' club. This had really lasting impacts. People who knew her said that Julie would forever chase approval from men for the rest of her life, probably because of this. And since the family had two young kids now, Julia is a stay-at-home mom. And John starts picking up even more shifts in the police force. And I don't know if it was the spending more time, you know, taking her children to visit the reservation because Julia really wanted them to know their roots or whether it was watching her kids grow up or that near-death incident where Julie was almost ran over by a car when she was three. Like, a lot happened. And Julia thought, I think I gotta be a better mom. I'm gonna quit the drugs. Those who knew her said, sadly, quitting drugs did more harm than good for her mental health. At least in the short term. The drugs were helping Julia stay on top of the housework. On top of looking after the kids, she would stay motivated on the drugs. She felt like she had endless energy. But now, now that she was clean, she no longer had the superhuman energy. She was just another mom struggling to balance it all. That stress, that exhaustion, it made her so depressed. She started developing insomnia. She was prescribed sleeping pills, and instead of taking them like instructed, she took the whole bottle at once to end her life. Luckily, John came home in time to call 911 and save Julia's life. And interestingly, when the kids were young, they're running all over the place. Julia is exhausted. She's overworked. She's overstimulated. But the minute that those two started going to school, you would think that's all she wanted, right? But now as a stay-at-home wife, she was bored out of her mind when the kids went to school. She had no sense of identity. She had no friends, no community. She was just so bored. So then she turned to a different drug, alcohol and she would just drink her feelings away then she would eat her feelings away this resulted in julia gaining 80 pounds and Julia was always perceived as conventionally attractive, right? And with society's pressure of being thin, Julia felt like if she wasn't thin, she wasn't attractive. So that led her to be more depressed, and it made her drink and eat more and gain more weight, which would then harm her self-esteem, which would lead her to drink more and eat more. I mean, it was this vicious cycle that I think a lot of women can relate to. So Julia's self-love, her confidence plummeting, just a underground tunnel plummeting it did not help that john senior was spending no time with his family on top of that sure yeah okay he was working (laughs) putting food on the table but for christmas instead of spending time to buy his kids a christmas present or even taking the kids to buy their christmas presents he drove them to the toy store gave them a couple dollars each or like 20 bucks each and was like all right go pick up a toy and he waited in the car He didn't even go inside. He's already there. Like this guy checked out of his family. That's how he gave them presents. He deprived his whole family of love and affection, but he was super quick to dole out punishments to the kids. And add to the lack of parental love, Julia started beating the kids in a drunken daze every single day. John said, John Jr. said, she hit us very hard and very often, sometimes with her hands, sometimes with whatever was available. I mean, it was just not a normal childhood. Julie said sometimes her mom would grab her by the hair and drag her all throughout the house. Most of the violence would be saved for Julie, too, because Julie was the older one. When Julia was asked about, hey, um, why did you beat your kids so much? She said, because I got fat from drinking beer. What? Yeah. I got fat? Yeah. What? So she hit her kids because she got fat from drinking beer. Wow. Listen, I don't know how to feel about that. I mean, I guess I appreciate the honesty, but... It's not a good reason. There's no reason to beat your kids. Speaking of, remember how I said John Scully was only attracted to Julia for her looks? Mm -hmm. Well, he was a fat phobic, okay? He decided that now that she was close to 200 pounds, she was no longer deemed attractive in his eyes. He just straight up wasn't interested in her anymore. He claimed it wasn't just her looks, though. It was her whole vibe, you know, everything. I'd come home from work and she'd be wasted. I had to call an ambulance twice just to save her life when she OD'd on her meds. Listen, I stayed for several years for the kids, but I knew how to start a new life, okay? But the problem was, he started that life before he ended this life. So he started sleeping with his female neighbor while he was still married. And also, that's your freaking neighbor! You lost me there and at the fat phobia. I feel like John was maybe too scared to bring up the divorce to Julia. So he almost wanted Julia to catch him cheating because why else would you make out with your mistress in the middle of the residential street in front of your house at your child's ninth birthday party? So after that, the Hunger Games of divorce commenced. And may the odds ever be in your favor. Listen, I'm usually like, woo, toxic parents getting divorced because it's usually better than them staying together Mm because two toxic parents in one household, that's like a lot. But in this case, I'm kind of torn because as much as the couple were pure chaos together, they were a fucking tornado after the divorce. For eight years, they were nonstop suing each other. Eight years, that's almost a decade. Suing for what? Custody, money, child support, the house, everything. The fucking car. They're like, that's my car. Don't drive my car. Emotional distress. I mean you name it. There was probably a lawsuit by these two John moved in with another woman and sometimes he would promise to take the kids fishing He's like like good old times. Daddy will come pick you up He'd come to the house and be like never mind We're not going fishing and then he'd stay for five minutes and then leave and the kids would have been prepping for this fishing trip for like Two weeks. They'd be so excited. Like remember when you're a kid and your parents like we're gonna go to Disneyland And then they don't take you to Disneyland. I have so many trust issues from that so many. Meanwhile, Julia would be so pissed because John spent more time with his new girlfriend than his own kids. So she would get revenge by sitting down the kids and being like, did you know, kiddos, your daddy don't love you? No, nope. In fact, he hates you. He left me because he hates you guys so much. So that's why I'm sad because I'm stuck with y'all. At the same time, she was also getting more physically abusive towards her kids from the pent-up anger and stress. So overall, the two kids, it was toxic. And by the time that Julie was, what, 11, 12, she's drinking, smoking, partying. I mean, she's basically going around unsupervised. Listen, Julia would beat her up for partying. But the way that she taught lessons were bizarre. If she caught her young kids underage drinking at like 11 years old, I would imagine, okay, I'm thinking, if my kid is 17, 18 they're underage drinking. I know why they're underage drinking. I would have a talk about peer pressure. I would. I don't know. Okay. That sounds so stereotypical, right? But that's kind of why they're drinking. But if they're 10, 11, I'm like, okay, we got to talk about why you're drinking. There's got to be an underlying problem here that I'm not seeing. Mm-hmm. But instead, Julia is like, oh yeah, you want to drink some beer? Both of you sit down. You're going to drink all the beer in the fridge until you're throwing up she would have them chug beer until they were bent over throwing up everything that they ate that day and she thought that they would learn their lesson like that they did not they what? were just severely hung over the next day but that was it yeah it's just a very huh. bizarre like you just made a bunch of hungover 11 year olds that's all you did and then as a great example julia would get drunk the next day and then beat her kids some more. So it was like, how are you going to tell me not to drink when you get drunk and beat us? Now, at one point, the dad did want custody of the kids again. And here's what's so interesting about so many um trends I see in divorces with these cases. But it's that... A lot of the times, the father is primarily the reason why the divorce happens. Usually, an affair takes place, correct? And the father leaves the house and moves on with another woman. And the mom is in charge of taking care of the kids, physically at least, right? Mentally, emotionally too. But for some reason, the kids idolize the father. Maybe Mm -hmm. because he's not around. And I've seen this with so many different cases. And it's almost kind of similar to even me. Wait what? I know (laughs) me getting so deep but like my dad left for Korea when I was younger and technically he is just objectively speaking probably a worse parent than my mother but um yeah I idolized him from so long and I would always just give my mom shit for it why is that I don't know I guess when I was younger the person that's not there it makes you feel like they're perfect even though they're not there but then you get older and you're like oh oh that's abandonment so that's not perfect at all that's technically could be potentially illegal you know what I mean but okay (laughs) yeah so interesting they idolized their father so they would do anything to live with their father and his new wife Lorelei. which by the way Lorelei and Julie did not get along Julie hated her Julie was like you're stealing my dad away from me and I'm gonna I'm gonna do some sneaky stuff behind your back Which is why at just 14 years old, um, Julie had to get a psychiatrist because this psychiatrist was going to testify to the courts of why John Sr. needed custody of both the kids. Now, these psychiatrist notes are bizarre. The psychiatrist described Julie as attractive and thin, which I feel like is really freaking creepy because she's 14. Mm -hmm. I mean, am I missing something on why he felt the need to write that? So that's it. For that, yeah. With the help of a creepy psychiatrist, John gets custody of the kids. So now, Julie and John Jr. are living with him, and he made sure that they were up to par with his life. He wanted Julie to go to the best high school in the area, which was this prestigious high school that you had to apply to. You had to take an entrance exam, and it was connected to Temple University. It was literally on the campus, and people said, if you go to this high school, it's guaranteed entrance to Temple University. But the problem was, Julie was failing all of her classes. So how on earth is she going to get in? John had two things. He walked in to the principal's office, full cop uniform, and he sat down and said, Julie's indigenous, half indigenous. So I'm just saying, I'm just saying. They're like, you're right, sir. Um, Would she like to take an entrance exam? Yeah, that'd be nice. So she sits down, takes her entrance exam, and you're thinking, okay, well... That's not going to work because she's failing all her classes. Here's the thing about Julie. She had a photographic memory. What? Yeah, I know. So uh, does she so She still fails the class? She fails classes because she doesn't study. She doesn't turn in assignments. She does no homework. But mm-hmm. if you force her to sit down and read a textbook the night before her exam, flying colors. What? Because she has a photographic memory. For Is, real? Yes. So she killed the entrance exam. With one night of studying. Oh. There are kids that study for all of eighth grade to get into this high school. What is that like? Yeah. And I know, but you know, I don't think it's good because everyone said this about Julie. When she, because she had this photographic memory, there was no like dopamine release essentially when she is getting good grades. She was so understimulated by school. Oh. And she was so understimulated to the point where she didn't show up. She just stopped going. Huh. Nothing could keep her interested in school. I know, it's kind of interesting. So maybe being too smart is actually a bad thing. Yeah, she got in. But then she got bored and dropped out and got an office job. So 16 years old, she's basking in male attention. She's 5'7", conventionally attractive, petite, defined bone structure. I mean, guys flock to be around her. Here, let me show you a picture of her. Yeah, she's pretty. She's beautiful. And that's when she's in her... I would say she's like, in 20s. 30s. Yeah, mid-20s to late-20s, yeah. Late 20s? yeah. Audible now free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500. That's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try Audible free for 30 days. This is my favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day. I make myself some hot chocolate, I wrap up in my coziest blanket, and I become Detective June Parkett. I don't actually become a detective, but that's how I feel when I'm playing June's journey. You play as June and the story starts with you flying from London to New York to investigate the suspicious murder of your sister and brother-in-law. But that's just the first in a very long line of suspicious murders. There's so many family secrets, twists, and you get to uncover all of these mysteries through a series of hidden objects games. Like you search for hidden letters or other objects that help you advance in the story. The storytelling in this game is impeccable. I mean, every detail is important. It stimulates you because you feel like a detective. The game takes June literally all around the world, from New York to Havana to Paris, and you get to meet all kinds of characters. I do not trust any new characters at this point because everybody seems to have a hidden motive. And as the story is progressing, you can learn about new characters as you collect bits of information to build your photo album. I also really love the dialogue in this game and just how immersive it is. There are some scenes where you really feel like you are Detective June. There's mystery, murder, danger, even romance. Sometimes it does get a little intense. So if I feel like taking a break from all the crazy plot twists, I go back to my little private island. Okay, it's not little, it's actually huge. It's called Orchid Island and I get to decorate it in any way that I want. I have a waterfall on my island and I'm currently making a train station route. There's just something so satisfying about getting to color code everything and make sure all the pieces fit It's such a cozy yet thrilling game. It's almost as satisfying as puzzling the pieces of June's family's mysteries together because, listen, I'm telling you, my husband will definitely find me on the couch later today playing June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And guys just flocked to be around her and she loved it. She loved spending money on all her clothes, her makeup. She just liked hanging out with her friends. And at the ripe age of 17, She's like, I'm gonna get married. Yeah, I'm gonna decide my future right now. So she married this guy named Neil Ziegler and he was 23 from a wealthy family. So that was great. And both of Julie's parents were actually kind of relieved. First of all, out of all the guys that Julie could have chosen him out of, Neil was the most calm. He was the most put together. He came from a wealthy family. And at least now they always knew where Julie was because if she didn't pick up her phone, they could call Neil. That was the vibe. But by the time that Julie's parents came around, Julie was over the marriage. She was like, hey, guys, thanks for approving of Neil now, but um, I don't like him anymore. Are they married or no? Yeah, married? Yeah, they're married. For how long? <laughs> not long. Like a yeah. year or two. And she's like, I'm kind of done with this guy. He's very boring. First of all, he's laid back. His idea of a crazy weekend is smoking weed and hanging out with friends. The problem is I don't like weed and I don't like any of his friends. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Julie was a lot more outgoing, extroverted. Her husband was starting to get boring. So she divorced his ass and then went out to party. I mean, just to kind of paint a picture for you, Julie was beautiful and she knew it. Not in the sense that she was stuck up and made other girls feel really gross about themselves. No, she never did that. But rather, she you know those girls that are very pretty and they know how to use it to their advantage when it comes to men? That was her. So she had men tripping over themselves to help her, to talk to her, to take her on dates, to shower her with gifts. So in her early 20s, She catches the attention of a 32-year-old successful business owner by the name of Tim Nist. Tim was one of those born motivational videos on YouTube. He said, ever since high school, I was reselling cars for extra money in my town. This guy got bored easily. He said, fuck college. I don't need college. I don't need a degree to make money. He was jumping around from job to job trying to make a living. And finally, he opened up his own business, Sterling Lawns, a huge landscaping company. And the timing couldn't have been better. New Jersey real estate was in full swing and Tim was at the right place at the right time and his business took off. He hired a bunch of secretaries, several lawn specialists, and he was a millionaire by the time that he met Julie, a multi-millionaire. And for every million dollars that he had, he had a failed engagement to go along with it. Okay, sorry. I don't know if that's factually true, but he did have a lot of failed engagements. I don't know this guy's net worth. He would feel pressured to propose to long-term girlfriends and then he'd be like, wait a minute. I don't think I actually want to live the rest of my life with the swan. So then they would cut, call it off before they got married. And Tim was not a partier. He wasn't like, oh, no, I don't know if this is the one because I still want to go out there and sleep with all the other fish in the sea. Tim was... A very laid-back dude he was not a dan bazarian he was actually a really cool millionaire like he just liked to keep to himself he had dweeby little hobbies like um model rocket tournaments he loved making those model rockets oh oh, oh. Got it! got it got it you know what i mean yeah like yeah. science class yeah, yeah 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 and then he loved um civil war reenactments which um feels a little questionable but <sighs> i don't know okay yeah he was kind of you know dweeby in the best way possible like what i'm trying to say is he's the perfect catch he's not one of those millionaires that wants to cheat on his wife and is like all about like being a douchebag he wasn't one of those and julie would come in and change his life with her magnetic charm i mean there was this instant physical attraction between the two of them tim was also tall six four good-looking, athletic bod. And Julie, well, you know, she had the model looks. So at a party one day, Julie was making eyes at Tim. He approached her and she put a cigarette to her lips. And he swooped in and lit it for her while they maintained eye contact. It was... (laughs) 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 It was an intense, steamy, book talk moment. And the rest was history. They spent the rest of the night whipping around in Tim's Porsche 928 coupe like they were teenagers again which the 928 is apparently like the version of a 911. It's no longer around, but a 911 is a very fancy car. And in sneaky teenager fashion, that night, Tim's like, hey, Julie, I know this is really random and this has nothing to do with like what you're thinking. But um, I just really, you want to go surfing tomorrow? She's like, yeah, sure. Pick me up. Let's be real the guy just wanted to see her in a bikini because mm-hmm. she was wearing a sweatshirt at that party, like a very oversized sweatshirt. And he was like, I got to see what I'm working with, right? He fell so in love the next day. <laughs> if Tim had to describe Julie in three words that day, it was skinny, big tits. It is three words. It is, yeah. yeah he's yeah. really good at counting. <laughs> really good description. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of romantic, honestly. Yeah, really <laughs> emotional. Yeah, <it's- laughs> Side note, the 11-year age gap was nothing for this couple. Like, they hit it off during their surfing trip. They found out they had a ton of common interests. Like, they both liked hockey, social drinking, romantic comedies. And since Tim was financially secure, he loves spending money on all these types of luxuries. Traveling, fancy trips. And Julie had never experienced that before. I mean, she's in her early 20s. And it's like Tim almost enjoyed being able to relive the, the shock and the appreciation for these things that he was becoming. Jade for through her enthusiasm as wrong as it sounds tim kind of filled the role of father mentor in julie's life and um they moved in together everyone said they seemed so happy i mean yeah there were a few things that posed as a problem like julie's uncontrollable violence okay so remember how i said julie loved hockey she went to this local hockey game and she was actually the official scorekeeper and one time her one of the players swore like cussed out her friend Julie stopped the whole game to go tackle this guy and punch his face multiple times repeatedly. He's like a six foot, like really tall dude. She's like a petite little woman. The referee had to stop the game and pry Julie off this poor guy. Later that night, Julie sat there with her friends and she was like, I just feel so much regret. They're like, why? Because you punch the guy repeatedly, nonstop in front of hundreds of people. Is that why you feel remorse and regret? No. You know, I was wearing these thick mittens. I should have taken them off before I punched him. You know, because then I would have hurt him more. The mittens were softening the blow. Wow. Okay. Well, we got to go, Julie. So. You... I foresee marital problems. <laughs> yeah, but not a lot, oddly. um, Well, mm, once is more than enough, right? So, yeah. Let me explain what happened. Tim was waiting for Julie in the bar. And I guess this blonde woman was, like, making a conversation with him. They weren't sitting right next to each other. They were just alone at the bar. She was maybe waiting for someone. He's waiting for Julie. And they have this casual conversation going on. None of it was flirtatious. Tim really was a loyal guy. So Julie walks in, sees that he's talking to a woman and Tim said, I didn't even see Julie. Next thing I know, I'm getting punched in the face and I have a black eye. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, I regained my composure. And I said, Julie, why did you hit me? And she was saying, first of all, I will kick her ass for talking to you and then I'm going to kick her ass for being blonde. Julie was a brunette and apparently she hated blondes. It was like this whole blonde versus brunette war. No, I'm kidding. She just hated blondes that talked to her man. Yeah. She did not punch the blonde woman. Thank God. But she did punch her boyfriend, which I feel like that's domestic violence and that should. Anyway, the relationship progressed and it heavily relied on a double standard. Julie was ready to assault her boyfriend for so much as looking at another woman. But she wanted to go out and talk to whoever she wanted. So she would go to parties. She would talk to guys. But then the next day, she would be so pissed off that Tim's secretary was a woman. How dare he hire a woman? So Julie bullied Tim's secretary so much that the poor woman quit. And Julie was like, then I'm going to be your secretary. Oh and Tim was like, you're not even qualified. And she was like, I don't care because you're not going to hire another woman. Yeah. Which ended up not being a bad business move for Tim because he was using outdated technology and Julie computerized everything. So actually, um, she did help advance Tim's business. So at least that worked out. So anyway, unlike Julie, Tim just was not that jealous of a person. Even when the local newspaper, the Trentonian Put out an ad saying that they're having a bikini contest for the paper. Julie's like, I'm going to send my photos. It's going to be all over page six. Tim was fine with it. And you're like, damn right, he better be. This is back then. It was not common to see anyone in a bikini in the papers. Like anyone, let alone regular civilians that were not, you know, playboy bunnies or these crazy celebrities, bikini models. I mean, this was actually a national moral debate. This bikini contest that this newspaper held became a national Mori- like a moral debate that was featured on the Maury Povich show. Th- they had a whole debate around it. This is how conservative things were back then. And uh, Julie submitted her photos with the help of Tim. Tim was like, yeah, go for it if that's what you want to do. And she waited. And when her picture was featured on page six in anticipation of the bikini contest, she said it was one of the best moments of her life. And for the next few weeks before the contest, Julie would be striking poses, you know, practicing her walk. Tim helped her. He was super helpful. Wait, so they're doing another contest? So that was just, oh, these are the contestants. They Uh, were showing one by one. Come come see them. Yeah, like building Uh. up the hype. And uh, the bikini contest, last year's winner, Cheryl, she said, I thought Julie was the most beautiful girl there was. She was just so striking. At first, I thought she was Asian, and I was trying to figure out what nationality she was. But wow, she was beautiful. So Julie came, strutted her stuff, and she didn't win. She didn't even place Not runner-up, not second, not third, nothing. Julie was so pissed that she stormed over to Tim and told him, I am better than the girl that won. But she did win some other things. Julie was like a master networker. So at this bikini event, she befriended the heads of the newspaper. She befriended a bunch of business owners in the area. And she started getting hired to do work, like modeling work, being a promoter, doing all of this. And people loved her. She, they said that she would light up a room. She would talk to every single person about something so passionately. Like she was so bubbly. She flirted, but it, w- it wasn't in like a creepy throwing herself at people to get a sale or anything. But it was just so natural. Like mm-hmm. she was naturally flirtatious, but she was dead loyal to Tim. Not once did she even think, not once was she ever tempted to ever cheat on Tim. And Tim knew it. He wasn't jealous. He was actually very confident. He's like a grown man. He understands this is part of the job. It's part of the dream. So even when there was a giant billboard with a picture of Julie in a bikini that was made, and that was her proudest moment, he supported her. When Julie got to these, you know, functions and networking events, other models' boyfriends would come to make sure that their model's model girlfriend weren't flirting with other men. Tim would stay home and work on his Civil War reenactments. (laughs) cuz he was like I trust you. His favorite thing to say to other people that were like, aren't you worried that your girlfriend is like a bikini model and it's like, you know, kind of crazy she's going to cheat on you, right? He's like, no. I mean, if she wants to go and cheat on me, that's fine. She just can't come home after. So he's like if she cheats, she cheats. I'm not gonna, me being there isn't going to prevent her from cheating one day. So on top of that, Julie's getting booked left and right by local local companies. They said she was a dream to work with. Always professional. She was not one of those egotistical local models that was like, I demand this in my trailer. I want this and this. You got to get my good side. Julie would stay after hours to help them, you know, undo all of the lighting like she worked hard she was so reliable she had no sense of ego or entitlement which is wild considering she's doing all of this while she's still working as tim's secretary i mean this woman was full of energy and full of ambition and her work ethic is freaking out of this world and it paid off she's like a mini celebrity in the local area She was friends with the mayor. She was politically well-connected. She was invited to all the official city events. And I mean, that year, everything was perfect for Julie. Because on Christmas morning, she was proposed to. It was a complete and utter, not a surprise. Because, um, well, Julie had been pressuring him for like two years. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, Tim knew Julie was the one. He had never wanted to settle down with anyone as much as he wanted to settle down with Julie. But... You know, she definitely wore him down. Yeah, for sure. He said she wanted an engagement ring. She was pretty persistent and uh, she got it. I was moving along with my life in a smooth sea and Julie was this headstrong woman. She's kind of a controlling person. And to give you an example of how controlling she was, she went straight into bridezilla mode. Tim was not allowed to have any say in anything about the wedding. All he could do was submit a guest list for Julie to consider of all the people that he wanted to invite on his side. And that was it. You don't get a say in the color scheme, the flowers, the cake, nothing. Now, with the wedding planning, with the modeling, with the secretary position, Tim is like, you got to quit this job. Like, I can find another secretary. You're getting no sleep every night. And he tried to reassure her, which kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But he was like, don't worry, Julie. I'm going to hire someone big, fat and ugly. Yeah, and sounds pretty fat phobic. OK, but um, you get it. She wasn't having it. She was like, I don't care. I'm going to be your secretary so that you can't have another girl sitting in this desk. So she just drank more and more caffeine and would stay up all night working. And it paid off. They got married. It was a beautiful day. And they went on a luxury cruise to the Caribbean islands after. And they loved it so much, they made it an annual trip. It was the highlight of Julie's life. I mean, she had everything. A wealthy husband who loved her, who showered her in gifts and luxuries. They were about to buy their dream home together. Her career was popping off. She's happy. She has friends. She has a community. I mean, it was great. Even when Tim and Julie clashed personality-wise, they made it work. For example, Tim likes to go to a party and leave an hour later so that he could get some extra sleep before work. Julie loves to be the last one to leave, and she loves to party it up. So they would drive to the function separately so that they wouldn't argue. And they would just come home whenever they wanted to go home. Wow. Honestly, very mature. Yeah, impressive. Yeah. yeah. Sure, sex slowed down a bit. Tim said, you know, sex was okay. When it happened, it was great. That, of course, slowed down as it always does in marriage. But, hey, they were in love. They had respect for one another. They they would never dream of being unfaithful to one another. And even behind closed doors, they were in love. Julie loved vlogging. She never posted it anywhere. She's like the pioneer of vlogging. But she would just vlog all day. I I feel like Julie was a baddie that was born in the wrong era. Is that statement cancelable like i just feel like she would have absolutely thrived on social media she would have been like a style icon she's so bubbly and extroverted she loves making connections she actually feeds off of high energy social interactions so if she's not interacting with people she becomes seemingly depressed you know so she needs this type of energy around her and she was with a man who yes was the opposite of her but really let her shine and then it went downhill when she got pregnant And it's not like the pregnancy was unwanted. Not at all. They'd actually been trying. But once she got pregnant, the pressure was on. She's in her 20s now. Julie was petrified that she wouldn't be able to bounce back after a pregnancy. And this was going to end her modeling dreams. So she stayed vigilant. She was exercising, watching her food intake while she was pregnant. And she was starting to feel good and excited. So for the first two trimesters, she only gained 35 pounds. Which is really not a lot. She still looked thin just with this baby bump, and she showed it off. Like, she liked to dress in a way that would draw attention to her bump because the juxtaposition of this bump and then her petite little body was... It was different. It was giving Rihanna. Julie honestly would have been a style icon had she been born today, you know? Now, Julie did smoke and drink throughout her pregnancy, which is a horrible idea, but she just kind of refused to stop, and nobody could stop her. She would have a few glasses of wine here and there, so it's not like she's, you know, knocking back shots of tequila and getting wasted every weekend, but... As far as smoking, she did not restrict herself. So yeah, everything was going swell. And then boom, the third trimester. And suddenly, Julie was gaining more weight. She was experiencing mood swings because her hormones are all over the place. And at times, she would get incredibly violent. She once went to a hockey game and a guy near her had remarked on her belly. And I think he probably had said something along the lines of, Oh, watch out. You're going to bump into all of us, you know, because she's clearly pregnant. But um, she physically attacked the man. So that's a lot. She gave birth on November 26 to um, Katie Nist. The first few weeks that katie was born it was a magical time for the family i mean baby katie was beautiful tim and julie had no idea that their lives could be this good tim was in love with his wife tim was in love with their baby he was in love with this whole family and then everything was about to unravel julie at first was doing great she even reconnected with her brother and her mother because she just had this baby and she's like, I think I want this baby to have an uncle. I think I want my baby to know her grandma. So hi, you know, because they had really weird childhood growing up. They had been estranged for a while. And initially it was great. But you know, when someone toxic is in your life, it's always great initially. And then they get a little too comfortable. That's what happened. Julie's mom got too comfortable. And Julie had depression, probably postpartum, but also general depression. And her mom was not helping. In fact, Julia came into Julie's life and started criticizing her for every little thing. She's not latching properly. You're doing it wrong. Why do you change your diaper like that? It's not right. How do you not have time to do the dishes? You only have one baby. I had two babies and I still did the dishes. For two years, Julie was berated by her mom. For struggling to be the perfect mother, which by the way, Julia, you're not one to talk. And I think this type of relationship started to bring up the unresolved feelings and childhood traumas in Julie's life. The memories that she was probably trying to suppress. Some friends of Julie said, you know, when you have a baby, you just start reflecting a lot. Okay. Start thinking about life. And I think it really upset Julie because she's looking at her baby and thinking, I love this baby so much. How could someone leave a baby? How could my dad leave me and just move on with a new woman? How could my mom beat me like that and treat me like that? I would never do that to my baby. She just couldn't even imagine. Like, was something wrong with her? And it just really hurt. So she would stay in bed for days at a time. She completely lost her sex drive. And Tim would complain that she never wanted to have sex and she never seemed interested in him anymore. And truth be told... Julie didn't want to have sex, not because she wasn't interested in him, but she felt so uncomfortable in her own skin. I feel like that's usually the case with like sex and marriage. It's never because the woman is unattracted to her partner. I feel like typically it's because they just don't feel comfortable naked or they don't feel very right? The baby weight wasn't coming off effortlessly. Julie was the type that never worked out before this. Her metabolism was insane. She could down like a billion cheeseburgers and not even gain like half a pound. But now her body is changing. Her metabolism is changing and her body shape is changing. She used to be so incredibly petite and now she had to adjust to existing in what she felt was like a larger body. I mean, regardless of her size, I think it's really hard for any woman considering how society functions. So if Julie had any hope of going back to her modeling career, she's got to exercise, but she is too depressed. She cannot even get out of bed for days at a time. How is she going to go exercise? And then her weight added to her depression and then she would stay in bed even longer and there was just like this vicious cycle. And Tim said, I think she just felt trapped. She was this party girl and she had this life before the baby and now she couldn't go and live that life like she used to. And it was hard for her. So Julie started seeing a psychiatrist, which again, Okay, these were all the right things. Like they're doing all the right steps to get better. But the psychiatrist royally sucked. They put Julie on meds and was like, All right, we need you to remember more about your childhood trauma. Yeah. So every session, they'd be like, What else do you remember? and julie would sit there scanning her brain scanning her memories and be like oh yeah and then this happened oh my god i totally forgot about that now that you mention it this happened and this happened and then um at the end julie would reopen all these wounds these unresolved strong emotional memories and then the psychiatrist was like good good that's good that you remember but um our session is over yeah so bye and the next week they'd be like what else do you remember so Basically, it was just adding more trauma than it was resolving. This was also around the same time that Julie contemplated taking her own life. She's falling apart, and I think that's terrifying. And I'm sure there are so many people who talk about this frequently, but postpartum depression is so terrifying. I mean, the fact that it can just unravel someone's entire life... Like I just have so much respect for people who have given birth, it's incredible. Like all those hormones that are spiraling out of control, the self image issues, the pain, the loss of identity, the risk of your own health and well-being. like it is so much to sacrifice. So back to the story, Julie and Tim's marriage was also falling apart. Basically Tim felt like Julie always wanted reassurance and uh, it felt like she almost wanted him to be a jealous person, but he wasn't. He's like, why do I have to do that? Basically Tim was incredibly secure and stable which is fine, but he didn't understand that Julie wanted some reassurance because she has baby weight and, you know, things weren't going well for her and she just felt really insecure and he was like, why are you being like this? Why are you being so clingy? To him, he just couldn't really comprehend why she needed him to tell her she looked fine. But she did. So the two tried couples counseling but it didn't work. Julie wanted to stop going, and she told Tim, you know, I don't like seeing two therapists in one week. Like, I got my own personal therapy and now couples therapy. It's a lot, but that wasn't the truth. Julie told her friends later, well, I don't know if I should even do couples therapy because my personal therapist is just encouraging that I divorced Tim. What? Yeah, her therapist was bizarre. Yeah. Her personal therapist was basically like, divorce, babes, divorce. And Julie had a lot on her mind. Her therapist kept telling her that she was young and beautiful. She could easily find someone to take Tim's spot. And then the therapist was trying to convince Julie that she needed independence. Because Julie had essentially been in a relationship since she was 14 years old. She was a serial monogamist. And they were like, you need time to explore yourself which I feel like you can do even if you're married. Like, there is no perfect marriage, right? And I'm sure Tim had a lot of faults, including the fact that he couldn't just understand that his wife would need reassurance after giving birth and having her body go through so much transformations, you know? But the fact of the matter is, everybody that knew the couple said Tim actually was really one of the good ones. Like, he supported her, never got jealous, just wanted her to be happy, like, let her shine. But I think Julie couldn't see that in that moment. She just started talking to her friends about leaving Tim and trying to be independent. But uh, she just went about it the wrong way. Julie started partying again and leaving Tim and the baby home as if she were still single. As if she didn't have a daughter to take care of. Not that being a mom is the only responsibility she has or that Tim shouldn't take care of the child too. It's just the fact that she was acting like she had no responsibilities. She started doing cocaine. Yeah, Tim had no idea. He thought her erratic behavior was a combination of alcohol and antidepressants. And now, remember how the couple usually went on that annual cruise? Usually they left in January. But this time, Julie was like, let's go in November, you know? Wouldn't it be great to rekindle our relationship on this sexy Caribbean cruise? So Tim's like, you know what? You're right. So November 1st, they left Katie with Julia and flew to San Juan to join the galaxy on its first winter season cruise. And something happened on that cruise that literally nobody saw coming. So the cruise was super fancy and Tim and Julie would spend a lot of time together during the day, but usually during the night, they would split up. Tim liked to go to the room and rest. Julie liked to put on a sexy low cut dress and go to the casino to make friends and get drunk. Sometimes during the day, Tim would go take a nap and Julie would lounge at the pool or at a casino. And one day on one of these occasions, a crew member approached Julie and struck up this conversation. His name was George, and he told Julie three truths and two lies. Truth number one, his name was George. Truth number two, he was an engineer on the ship. Truth number three, it was his maiden voyage, his first trip. Lie number one, he lied about his age. He said he was 28, but he was actually 23 years old. Lie number two, he made it seem like he was a very important engineer on the trip. I mean, engineer sounds fancy, right? But in reality, he was a third engineer, which is the lowest rank a crew member can have. His job duties included maintaining the swimming pool and occasionally keeping lookout. So why did George lie? Well, he thought Julie was hot. And unbeknownst to Julie, he had seen her for the past few days and figured that she was rich and saw that her husband was older. So he made a $10 bet with another crew member that he could get her to sleep with him yeah wow $10 bet yeah Julie entertained the conversation not because she was interested in George but because he was a high-up crew member or at least she thought so she thought that she could network her way into some upgrades or a VIP connection yeah for her and Tim Tim actually spotted them talking at one point and he was not nervous he never was nervous even if George was super handsome and young Tim would not have been jealous but George yeah he was young but he was not conventionally attractive The most prominent thing people remembered about him was that he had an abysmal receding hairline and very, very bad teeth, which, again, was more like a personal choice. It wasn't the lack of dentistry and where he came from. He's he's Greek. He just did not really take oral hygiene seriously. So throughout the entire cruise, George would talk to the couple, but mainly Julie. And the couple did not receive any special treatment because, well, George had no authority to give them any special treatment. But at the end of the trip, They all exchanged addresses, and to Tim, it was this innocent interaction. It was all polite. It was all normal. He was too busy thinking about how his marriage was getting back to where it used to be, how he had reconnected with Julie. Meanwhile, Julie is not feeling Tim. After their cruise, she confided in a friend that she was in lust. She had met someone on the cruise, and they didn't do anything. She never cheated on Tim, but she couldn't stop thinking about him. What? Tony, her friend, was shocked. I mean, all these years, Julie never once talked about another guy like this. And he told her, it's just a crush, you know, it's going to go away. But Julie didn't let it go. In fact, George was writing her letters to New Jersey practically every day. And then he started calling weekly. And incredibly, Tim would answer the phone sometimes, know that it was George, and he wouldn't think anything of it. He'd be like, here you go, Julie. Yeah. Meanwhile, George was trying to work his charm pinpointing all of Julie's biggest insecurities, the fact that she was turning 30 soon, the fact that she was insecure about her looks. George was exploiting all of that and trying to make her feel beautiful. He said, the reason that you don't feel beautiful is not because you're not, but it's because you are not with someone that makes you feel beautiful. And I can make you feel beautiful. Honestly, he was just an asshole and he was really vague about his own life. While Julie was opening up to George, George was hiding a shit ton of things from her. He was working overtime to make sure that she didn't know the real him. He was hiding the fact that he was 23, of course, but also that he was having an affair with a coworker on the galaxy cruise. He had this nasty personality. So growing up, George had like no friends and that sounds sad, but it's not. It's mainly because George felt like he was better than everybody else. Yeah, he was a loner. And ironically, the English translation of his last name, Skiadopoulos, is the son of shadows. Which sounds cool, but it's actually very creepy and foreboding, mainly because George was a violent person from the get-go. I mean, he was just super aggressive at home. He had this impossible temper. A lot of family members were terrified of him. They speculated that he had inherited his mother's schizophrenia, which reportedly had her admitted to a local mental asylum multiple times. And just like Julie, George's parents got divorced and George was used like a pawn in their bitter divorce. 14-year-old George was forced to record conversations between his mom and her new boyfriend so that he could give it to his dad to later use against his mom. It was weird and similar to Julie, George knew it was his dad that ruined the marriage, but he adored his father. Well, not enough to not stab the guy. Yeah, George straight up stabbed his dad in the neck during an argument and then pushed him down the stairs. You know, the good old fatherly stab and push your dad down the stairs. Is the dad okay? Yeah, he had to spend like a month in the hospital and he was on meds for years after this. George was sent to a mental institution, put on meds for schizophrenia, and when he got out, everyone pretended he didn't just stab his dad, they brushed it under the rug which i'm all for moving on and getting people the right care that they need but it was kind of wild how they pretended like it just didn't happen this is all before he got the job yeah wow this is all when he's a teenager like 14 15. i'm the type of person who's hyper aware of what i put in my body I have a lot of food intolerances, and it feels like every year I discover new ones. If you have allergies or IBS, or you choose to avoid certain foods for personal reasons, you know the food FOMO is real, and it's just not fun. A month ago, we went to Jeju Island, which is famous for pork, but because I'm allergic, I was just standing there watching everyone gobble up the food. And recently, I almost gave up morning coffee because I'm so sensitive to dairy these days, and black coffee just does not hit the spot. Thankfully, I found out about minor figures, and now I don't have to start my days on a bitter Note. Literally, Minor Figures is an oat milk brand. They're 100% plant based, carbon neutral, and B Corp certified. So not only do I get to enjoy my coffee, but I don't have to worry about anything irritating my stomach. There are no stabilizers or additives. And what I love is that Minor Figures Barista Oat really helps showcase the natural characteristics of the coffee. It's not just there to carry the coffee flavor, but it enhances it. So you know how at home coffee never hits the spot like coffee shop coffee? With Minor Figures, it does. You can really taste the coffee versus the oat milk. It's delicious. You can buy their products online at us.minorfigures.com. You can also discover fun games, music playlists, and explore their store locator to see where you can buy Minor Figures near you. For my listeners in Denver and New York, Minor Figures is also now available at Whole Foods. My dogs will eat anything. I mean, I have two Frenchies and it's a daily struggle to keep them from trying to eat toilet paper, bees, even trash. My dogs have no idea what's good for them. And you know, that's okay because their job is to be cute. My job is to take care of them to the best of my ability. That is why I only buy the farmer's dog dog food. Think about it. Most dog foods claims it's made out of whole ingredients. But then why does it come in the form of these very crusty pellets? But dogs will eat anything you give them, even dry kibble. Most dog food claims that they're made out of whole ingredients. But when I stare at these dry kibbles, it's very hard for me to see the whole ingredients. And I always had to mix in bone broth or water because it would be so dry that my dogs would eat too quickly and they would hack it up. It just didn't look tasty. The farmer's dog believes that all dogs deserve to eat real fresh food food. That's why farmer's dog dog food is made from whole wheat and veggies and gently cooked in human grade kitchens to preserve nutritional value. It makes me feel so good seeing my dog's little tails wagging. Sometimes Mango's entire butt will shake when it's time for their dinner because they know. And I know that they're eating fresh, healthy food. It genuinely looks like human food. I've noticed such an improvement in how shiny and soft their coat is and their breath doesn't teleport me into another dimension anymore. I can see the veggies in their food. I mean, My dog always gains a little bit of weight this time last year just because they move around less when it gets a little bit colder. So I feel like it's very important to always watch portions in the winter months. The Farmer's Dog makes it easy to monitor my dog's portions. Our dog's meals arrive in pre-portioned, ready-to-serve packs, which is super convenient. All you need to do is tell the Farmer's Dog about your puppy or your dog, and they'll deliver personalized, vet-developed recipes for as little as $2 a day. And you can adjust the recipe selection, portion sizes, and delivery cadence according to your needs and schedule. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. George's dad would later even use his connections to help find George a okay-paying job on celebrity cruises aboard the Galaxy Cruise, yeah? And the connections makes it sound like George and his family are for money, but they're not. His dad was a merchant, though, so he knew a lot of people out at sea. November 1st rolls around. George embarks on his first trip and he meets Julie. And he made it his mission the whole time to seduce Julie. He knew that she was rich. She was way out of his league. And he wanted all of that. He wanted a smart, hot girl to date. And if that meant he could quit his job and mooch off of her, then so be it. Julie was also at a very vulnerable point in her life and she just kind of welcomed George's attention. I I think it was very much of, wow, this younger guy thinks I'm still attractive because she was really insecure about turning 30. So having the attention of this young guy, it helped her self-esteem. And of course, Tim had no idea that Julie was drifting away from him. In fact, he thought things were better than ever. That Christmas that year, he even hired a Santa Claus to come to their house to give their daughter presents. It was such a cute moment. He did not realize that Julie had already mentally and emotionally checked out. And almost immediately after the Christmas party, Julie was like, hey, can we go on another cruise? He's like, what? We just went. But, you know, I want to go. I think it'll be good. So he's thinking about it. And it's like, "Okay, well, I guess we do the do the cruises on January. And, you know, what's the harm? It helped our relationship so much in November. January, this is going to cement the deal. We're going to be good after this. So he got on board. Pun intended. But then Julie was like, I want to do the same exact cruise that we did in November. And he's like, the same one? I mean, we could literally go anywhere in the world. If you really like, we could stay with the celebrity cruise line and just go to a different destination. I, I don't know why you wouldn't want the exact same schedule enjoying the same exact things that we just had, what, like 60 days ago. Tim chalked it up to Julie having so much fun that she just wanted to re-experience it. He didn't even think of all the letters that she was getting or the phone calls she got nearly daily from the receding hairline guy that worked on the cruise. What was it? Just he thought it was a friend? Yeah, they had a friendship now. So he agreed and sure enough, January, George was there to greet the couple like old friends. And at first it was fine, but soon enough, George was really getting on Tim's nerves. Not because he was flirting with Julie, which he was, but anywhere they turned, George was there. Like, do you not have a freaking job you gotta do or something? And George actually became a basis of one of their fights on the cruise. Tim started to get annoyed at George and Julie was acting very suspicious. He just wanted to spend one night with his wife and she was like, I'm going to go out with the girls and George. So he threw up his arms and he's like, well, then go see George then. And she did. Yeah. She went to the bar and started ranting about Tim to George, who, of course, was consoling her, saying all the right things. Because it's always easy to be on a high horse unless you're in that relationship. So he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know why he's doing that. I would never do that. George leaned in for a kiss. Julie rejected him, saying that she's a married woman. But after a few more drinks, she went back to his cabin and they had sex. When she got back from the cruise, she told all of her friends about it. And everyone was shocked. It just wasn't like her. I mean, she was very proud, too. She was angry, almost. She gave the impression of, like, screw Tim. I met someone else and now Tim can't hurt me anymore. My speculation is that Julie was going through a lot after giving birth. Her insecurities were starting to take over. She felt insecure, uncomfortable with her looks, her body, her career. And maybe she associated all those feelings with Tim because he wasn't helping her feel better. And now she felt like George could help her. And because he could help her, maybe that meant that he loved her more than Tim did which is just my speculation because it was shocking to all of her friends. Tony, her closest friend for years, the godfather of her child, tried to talk some sense into her. He was upset. He said, Julie, don't you realize that you're doing the same thing to Katie that your father did to you? Julie cut off Tony for George, which was confusing for everyone and not to be rude, I'm just giving you context, but George did not have much to offer. I know, I know that Tim is 11 years older than Julie, but he took care of himself. He was conventionally very attractive. He worked hard, he was a millionaire. George was young. That's really all he had going for him. He didn't have a career that was established. He didn't have a stellar personality, really. He also was not very good looking. Like I said, he had bad oral hygiene and a very intense receding hairline and just a really nasty personality, but he was smooth. He knew the right things to say to Julie and she was vulnerable and maybe it was the cocaine and alcohol. Maybe Julie was not thinking correctly. So when she gets back, Julie is talking to George in secret practically every single day because this time they have to be more careful and George would write to her and he would say things like, you are my life. I love you from the bottom of my heart and I'm here for you. Maybe it sounds stupid, crazy, and nobody can believe that, but who knows the truth but us. I do love you. Signed, your macho baby man. That's what he called himself. You're a macho baby man. And he would add hearts and kisses all over the letters like a little middle schooler. And it worked. Julie was so infatuated. She came up with this whole master plan to go see him without Tim knowing. And she even recruited her mom to help. But when Julia found out what she was going on a trip was not a girl's trip. And it was basically to help Julie cheat. She was pissed. But what could she do? When she got back, she was even more sure about her feelings with George. And Tim basically said, either we're on or we're off. Like, either we're together or you're in it 100% or we're just divorced. And before she even responded, he demanded a divorce. I think he just had a gut feeling. Like, he knew what was going on. So just like that, all it took was one medium-ugly wannabe sailor Sorry, George, but not really, because he's pure evil. But all it took was one dude to ruin their whole marriage, their whole perfect life. Tim moved out, let Julie live in their house, but he wasn't going to let her take half of his money. In fact, he was really smart with it. He never made Julie a shareholder in his company, and he was really well protected throughout their marriage in the case of a divorce. So don't get me wrong. Julie was going to get money, but um, it wasn't going to be half of what Tim had. But George was disappointed. He still wanted whatever Julie was getting, and he kept telling her, just hurry up and get the divorce, get your money and move to Greece. We can be together. We can get married. Julie flew to Vancouver to see him. He was working on a different cruise. She even stayed in his cabin with all this sexy lingerie that she bought just for him. She had been exercising, dieting for George, and she really did dream of moving with Katie all the way to Greece to be with George. I mean, if I'm being honest, I am completely floored by Julie's mental state at this point. I mean, she has this child. She has this life that most people would dream of having. She and Tim were millionaires. She had a shot at modeling still. She was young. She had so much to live for. And it's so sad to know that Julie was so mentally unwell that She couldn't even see how well she had it. She was depressed, abusing alcohol, abusing drugs. Her brain chemicals were all over the place. She needed a very competent professional. She did not need George Skiadopoulos, but unfortunately he was like a little parasite. He happened to be at the right place at the wrong time. And now he had latched on on onto Julie and there was no getting rid of him. He even convinced her to get off her antidepressants because he said he didn't like medication. let's be real he just wanted her to be easier to manipulate so she was just on cocaine staying up into the wee hours of the night waiting for george's call because they are in a different time zone and when they were finally done talking she couldn't fall asleep because of the cocaine so she would take tranquilizers to fall asleep and then she would wake up do cocaine work out and she was restricting her food intake she was on a crazy diet i mean it was so unhealthy and honestly, I don't think Julie would have even entertained George if she were herself. I mean, during her career, Julie was propositioned by a ton of wealthy, attractive men that were arguably either more attractive than Tim or arguably more wealthier than Tim. But she never cared. Not once did she even feel tempt or anything. But somehow, George weaseled his way into her life because she wasn't in the right state of mind. So she starts slowly isolating from her friends and family, even her dreams, So George in the beginning was like, you need to model. You need to follow your dreams. You can still do it. But now when she told him she contacted modeling agencies, he flipped out. He was like, you're going to be doing some horseshit. He was just jealous and insecure that if she got a job, she would find someone else and leave him. So he refused to, quote, let her model. Cheryl, Julie's model friend, tried to reason with her. She was like, Julie, why are you letting this random guy tell you what to do? You barely know him. Why are you throwing away all your dreams? For what? Tim would have never stopped you from pursuing your dreams. So what are you doing? Julie told George about this conversation and he convinced her to cut Cheryl off because she was a horrible friend and she was just jealous of what they had. Meanwhile, George is still out there partying it up, flirting with women all the freaking time. He's still having an affair with a crew member, which by the way, he told Julie about it and she was pissed. She told George in a letter, I feel like you put a knife in my heart. Nothing is more important to me than you are. You always tell me that I'm number one, but then you have to hang up after only talking for five minutes. I don't understand. I try and do everything to make you smile because I love you so much. Why did you say that my love for you is going down? Don't you know that it hurts me every time you say that? I hate it when you say that. Don't say it again. I don't feel happy now. So this guy cheated on her and is trying to tell her and guilt trip her that she doesn't love him as much anymore. I'm sorry, what? Like the levels of manipulation, insane. George even encouraged Julie to get a restraining order on Tim because he was, quote, spying on her. How would George know? He wouldn't know, but he convinced her. He convinced her that she needed full custody and she should bring Katie to Greece with her. And in the letters, he referred to Katie as, and I quote, our daughter. Honestly, I think that he wanted Julie's child in Greece because it would be another way to manipulate Julie. Oh, and add to that, he kept telling Julie that he needed to hit her own child, that the way that she was disciplining Katie was not harsh enough. I, how do you, how do you, without any kids, give parenting advice? And then out of the blue, George called Julie and was like, Hey, baby, guess who quit his job for you? Yeah. The- wow. The guy quit his job because he wanted to visit New Jersey, live in her house, and live off of her money. Meanwhile, Julia's is deteriorating. The drugs, the alcohol, it, it was starting to catch up. She had headaches, awful stomach cramps. She lost her appetite completely. But somehow even that, George convinced her that it was because they weren't together. So she was experiencing these physical pains. When they were reunited, they would be okay. So she keeps writing to him things like, I want your body. I can't bear to be without you. Thank you for everything you did to make me feel better. It worked. You really understand what makes me tick, and you know what to say. You make me love you even more than I thought possible. Like I said, I love you more today than yesterday, but not as much as tomorrow. And with that, she flew him to New Jersey. Oh, and one of the first things she did was get him a dental appointment for his teeth and an appointment to get a hair transplant because his hair was receding. She even brought George to people that knew Tim well, so like the guy doing the hair transplant, and he's all like, uh, aren't you married to Tim? Yeah, their divorce wasn't even finalized yet. So Julie paid for the hair transplant and George was just straight up living off of her. He would lounge all day. Sometimes he would go to the gym with Julie, but that was about it. And Julie was paying for everything on her credit card that was connected to Tim's accounts because their divorce wasn't finalized. All of Julie's friends at this point had enough. George had convinced Julie that all of them were working for Tim and plotting against her and they were just over it. At one point, George convinced her that the speaker system in their house was being used to spy on Julie. So he ripped all the wiring from inside the drywall. And just when you thought he was the worst he could be, he was in a contest with himself to see who was more scum. And spoiler alert, George always beat George. So George choked Julie's mom. They got into an argument and he straight up choked her. Julie's mom said it was terrifying. He was pounding on the wall, grabbing me by the neck. I mean, he had this terrible temper and she called Tim and he encouraged her to call the police. Together, they worked to get Katie away from Julie and George. They felt unsafe for Katie. And because George was Greek, the authorities were like, hey, either we're going to go through with all of this or you can fuck out of here back to Greece. So that's what he did. He got on a plane with the ticket that Julie paid for. And for whatever reason, Julie continued to protect George. She even told her friends, no, I'm the one that strangled my mom. And George was just taking the fall for me. But nobody believed her. Julie settled in her divorce and was getting close to a million dollars. So at this point, she's going around telling everyone that she's going to take the $1 million in Katie and move to Greece and Tim was not freaking having it. I mean, it was very hard for Julie to stand up to Tim in family court. All of their former friends, all of Julie's closest friends were taking Tim's side for the sake of their child. They had to do what was right. Julie was unstable. George was violent and terrifying to be around. So it was clear Julie was not getting Katie. So after the divorce, she just hopped on a plane and headed for Greece. She was like, okay, then bye. At first, Greece was beautiful. It was warm. The couple were reunited. They were going around sightseeing, shopping for souvenirs. They ate traditional Greek food. They had a blast. There were some issues. First of all, all of Julie's stuff was still in the States. So she wasn't officially moved yet. This was like her first trip to see if she liked it. Second of all, Julie was not allowed to tell George's family that she was divorced or that she had a child. So she hid the most important parts of her life from George's family. I mean, I don't know if George's family would have cared, but I wouldn't have cared. Like if you were dating me and you were telling me to lie about something, the most important part of my life or a big part of my life, being a mom, I'd be out the door. So it says a lot about where she was at this point in her life. After this initial trip, she's like, yeah for sure, I gotta move here. It was amazing. George even convinced her that they were going to spend all of her divorce settlement on a taxi business, and they were going to make so much money. I mean, it sounded romantic to be starting this business in Greece of all places. So she left once more, but Julie didn't know, and her family didn't know, that this was the last time that they were going to be seeing her alive. In Greece, they rented this hotel And they were looking for this perfect apartment together. I mean, they were excited. They were getting married soon. So during the day, they would go apartment shopping. Then at night, they would go party and drink. Julie was so drunk so often that she would forget the time difference in U.S. And even Christmas Day went by where she didn't talk to her daughter because she forgot about the time difference and she was already asleep. So it sounds like everything's going well for her at least, right? Until January 11, one of Julie's closest friends, Sue, gets a phone call. And it's George. And he's frantic. Like the first few words that he blurts out are, I can't find her. What? What do you mean you can't find her? Calm down. Tell me what happened. George was frantic. The connection is bad. She could hardly hear him. But she gathered a couple of things. Julie went to Athens with George that weekend. She was going to pick up some stuff that she had shipped to Greece from the airport. And it was a long day. Now, that night, after everything, they went to this huge market at night, and it was just bustling and hustling of all these people bumping around. I mean, it was one of those night markets. And while they were shopping, Julie and George split up, and she disappeared into the crowd, and he hadn't seen her since. He waited for her, but nothing. He looked everywhere for her, but nothing. He was so confused. He was so scared. He called his dad. And together, they looked for her and looked for her, and then nothing. So they went to the police, and the police were like, eh, she's a tourist. She probably got lost, or maybe, you know, she's having fun. When George told Sue this, her first feeling was relief. And no, she did not hate Julie and she did not want her friend or ex-friend to be missing. But that was typical Julie. When she was done with a place or when she was done with someone, she didn't really need a whole conversation. She's the type to just freaking leave. Okay, she's like, okay then, bye, I'm done, right? She had been telling Sue that she was over Greece. So Sue thought she was on a plane on the way home to see her daughter. She was happy. Julie seemed to be getting over this George phase. But her relief came tumbling down when George mentioned, and she left her passport behind. So now she's like, okay, this is weird. So with this information, she hangs up and calls Tim. Then Tim hangs up and they go around calling all of Julie's former friends, and they start coming together to talk about what happened. And it was clear that Julie was missing. So her friends, they get involved. They spread the word of her disappearance, and it became national news in the US because, well, a young mother, a model leaving her wealthy family for a Greek guy with bad teeth that she met on a cruise. It was a sensational story. The media pressure was a lot. So when the police finally get involved, I mean, yeah, George is the number one suspect. He's looking very suspicious. So they bring him in, expecting him to give a bizarre alibi or a bizarre story. And this guy did not disappoint. He said, fine, fine. I'll tell you what happened. Okay. Julie was miserable here. She doesn't like Greece. I mean, she was straight up miserable. Okay, guys. So I told her to pack it up and go home because I have to enlist in the army for my mandatory two-year service in Greece. So I was like, go. And then afterwards, we can date again. But she refused. She's like, I can't go anywhere without you, George. So like a normal person, I thought if I was violent enough with her, she would leave. Wow. And I would go enlist in the army. And then when I'm done with my two-year army enlistment, we would date again. (laughs) It was flawless logic. So I just wanted Julie to be happy, but she wouldn't leave. So I tried to strangle her to get her to leave, and she still wouldn't leave. So anyway, January 8th, um, you know, we're in the car, driving on the highway. Desolate stretch of road. Nobody else was on the road, and the sun had the sun had set. We had into a fight. I pull over, and I shut off the engine. And I knew that she sensed something because there was, like, fear in her eyes, you know? And he leaned over and wrapped his hands around her neck and squeezed. The bones in her neck were crushed. And her body went limp and slid down the passenger seat. And she was dead. He said that? Yeah. So he's claiming he did it so that it was a crime of passion. He just wanted to choke her a little so that she would go back to America. Now, the truth is very different. Julie had her stuff shipped to the airport. And when they got to the airport, she had it shipped back to New Jersey. And that's when she broke it to him. She's going back. She wanted to be with her daughter. She was done with this. They weren't meshing. It just didn't seem right. She did not want to marry him. She did not want to leave her divorce settlement with him. But George claimed, you know, I wasn't happy about killing her. I was, I was devastated. When I was done, I thought, okay, what's left? I can just cremate her body, throw her ashes in the sea where we met. Because, you know, it's poetic. We met at sea and now she's in the sea. And then I was going to throw myself off the cliff to join her. I just couldn't be without her. So he threw her body in the trunk, went to go buy a can of gasoline, drove into the woods and lit her body on fire. I guess to cremate her. The fire was not hot enough, and all it did was char her corpse. Even her clothing and skin were still intact, but they were charred. So George said he felt bad throwing her in the water like this. So he drove to his grandma's house, borrowed one of her big suitcases, tried to stick her body in, but her head kept popping out. So he had no choice. He severed her head off. And he said he gave her severed head one last kiss. And even though her head was all charred and decapitated, she looked beautiful. Later, someone spotted her head in the water, but it was too disfigured to confirm that it was her. George is telling all of this to the police, by way, by the way, and he's seemingly so calm. And to add to that, he said he was so ha- sad about what happened, he tried to take his own life. He claimed that he tried to shoot himself in the neck with a BB gun, he jumped in front of a truck, and... Yeah, which... That's unclear. Was he run over? Did he just jump in front of a truck from like, I don't know, a mile away? He claimed he took an overdose of pills. But this guy is proving to be superhuman because he was not successful or even injured in any of these attempts. And now he was in jail trying to plead insanity. And the judge was not having it. And I have so much respect for Tim after his wife left him so publicly. This is like international news at this point. But he flew to Greece because the media was obsessed with victim blaming. All the headlines were craved detention. Cruises lack birth control. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. What? So he flew to Greece for the trial to humanize Julie. And in the end, George was found guilty and given life in prison without parole. It's, again, widely believed that he killed Julie because she was ready to leave. George appealed his sentence saying that it was a crime of passion and it was not premeditated murder. And for some strange reason, the court agreed. His sentence was lowered to just 23 years in prison. And not only that, he got out on parole and has been free since 2007. He's been living in Greece with a whole family, like he's married. And as for Julie's body, they had her body flown back to Jersey for a funeral. And Tim and Julie's friends all put together this journal of all the ways that Julie was great. Because... The whole world, all the media, all the news outlets was telling everyone that Julie was a bad mom. Julie was a bad wife. She was a bad person. She got what was coming because then don't have an affair. Oh, don't leave your perfect life. She she was ungrateful. Honestly, I think this is a story of a woman who was desperately struggling with postpartum and other depressions. So they came up with this journal of all the good things that Julie did for them and they gave it to Katie so she would know that her mom was a great person, regardless of what the world was saying. Her daughter went on to graduate college, seems to be opening up a business, and leading an incredibly successful life, just like her mother, so I'm glad that the family was able to recover from the trauma the best that they can. I wish them nothing but happiness and success. Again, I really do think that this case is not about an affair gone wrong. It's really not like any of the other stories we've done, where it's like, oh, I'm just so in love with this other person, so like I need to, you know... Yeah, I think think it it really shows how much it could impact someone when their mental state is in a different place. It's really scary. I think it's like to me what I see is this smart, talented woman who is so outgoing, was just so, I'm imagining, so fun to be around and then postpartum hit that led her to drug abuse, alcohol abuse and it just spiraled into this mental health journey that ended with this path that led to George. And honestly, if George wasn't on that path, I think that Julie might've been able to recover with the help of her friends, her family. I mean, it seemed like she had such a good support system, but the fact that he was there at the right place at the right time and ready to manipulate. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this case? Just makes me so sad. That's it for this week's mini-sode, and I will see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye.